This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. So we begin today, very exciting, we are now within a month, Purim is is coming up before we know it. So hopefully, with our learning together, we can go deeper into Purim and give a much deeper understanding to Purim, because we all know the, the themes of Purim are celebration, it's the Mishloach Manot, the gift baskets, the giving, the charity, listening to the Megillah, it's silly, people, you know, get dressed up. So there's something that's absolutely beautiful and festive about Purim as it should be. But what is not as well known, and this is really what we're going to get into in our discussions together over the next few weeks, is that the joy of Purim is very deep. The joy of Purim is not a joy, it's not a celebration that comes from this like, Hakuna Matata, Sababa, Akachimba, life is awesome, let's party. That's not the, the joy of Purim. The joy of Purim is a very deep type of joy that comes amidst pain. It's a joy that is meant to teach us that no matter what a person is going through, everything is a mask. The idea behind the costumes, behind the silliness, is to say that I, as a human being, I have the ability to laugh at the world. That no matter how, hold on, let me just let someone in here, that no matter how complicated life gets, that no matter how dark uh, life gets, no matter how much I find myself in, in confusion or in pain, and no matter how difficult or painful life gets, I can still find that joy. And therefore, the reason why Purim is so over the top, crazy and festive, and if you go, again, I, I, I grew up in a Purim environment in the yeshiva world, which is just like literally, literally over the top. I mean, you've got, it's just, a full 25 hours of singing and dancing and drinking and hugging and loving and dancing through the streets. If you've been to Israel on Purim, it's like, I mean, it's just one big carnival. Because when we're speaking about joy amidst pain, there's no halfway. You know, you're either in or you're you either get it or you don't. The only way to transform pain, when you're in a place of, 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 of darkness, of pain, the only way to really be able to achieve joy is to be able to look at the situation and say, it's only a mask. There's something much deeper. There's always a deeper place. I can go deeper. I can go beyond. And once you get to that place, that place is, it, it, it turns everything. The theme of the day of Purim is, everything is turned over. Everything is different than what it looks like. You think it's bad, it's really great. So it, it, it's a mystery to us. And what the, with, the, with our spiritual glasses, our goal is to be able to try to look at these situations and go a little bit deeper and say that we can find 
this joy that's behind all of this, that somehow all of this is leading to a better world, is leading to a better place, and to be able to find joy in that. And if you can buy into that, if you could subscribe to that, then you feel absolutely joyous. Then you feel like you can let go of all of the pain of the world, at least, you know, for certain moments, and really find that inner jubilation. So that's a little bit of an introduction as to uh, the overall theme uh, that we're going to discuss and really looking at Purim in that light. Purim not as a celebration because everything's amazing, but that Purim is specifically the joy that we find in the middle of that pain. The joy that we find, that little hint, that little ray of light that we can say, that's what this is really all about. Let me harp on that. Let me pull that out. And that's why the, the, the joy of Purim is one of such upside-downness, of such, such craziness. Okay, so let's begin. Let, let, let's, let's try to understand that um, a little bit deeper. And I think that the place to begin when we're speaking about Purim is to try to understand the bad guy. You know, I was, uh, <laughs> I had an interesting discussion with my kids, you know, because my kids are very big into, into Harry Potter now. So we went, when, when we were in Universal, we went to, uh, to Harry Potter land. So I got into this discussion with my kids as to, as to how, you know, everyone loves the good guy, but I said the real Chachman watching a movie, the real wisdom, the real Seichel is to learn the bad guy and learn what's driving him. Because really, if you think about it, the whole reason why this whole, the whole genre, this whole superhero genre that we have in movies that really makes up Hollywood, good guy, bad guy, where does it come from? Why do, why do, we, why do we buy into that? Because in our life, that's how we process our struggles, right? Good inclination, bad inclination. Right? There's Abraham, and then there is, you know, there's the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moshe, and then there's Pharaoh, and, you know, whoever, right, whoever the, the, the bad guy is. Right, so we're always processing things as good guys and good guys and bad guys. This is good, that's bad. So therefore, this whole genre of, like, superhero, supervillain, it's really playing on our inner on our inner instinct that we're all at this struggle. We all have this struggle of good and bad that's inside of us, right? And the way we look at it superficially and immaturely is that there's good Shlomo Buxbaum and there's bad Shlomo Buxbaum, right? And uh, there's the good things that I do and that's coming from this good place. And then there's all of my sins and all my embarrassing moments and all my struggles and that's coming from the bad place. And you could live your whole life making that terrible mistake that the good things you do are coming from the good you and the bad things that you do are coming from the bad things that you do. But it's really not true because the bad guy inside of you, the supervillain inside of you also has a story. And, and, and that story is very deep also. And you have to learn that story because sometimes that story will tell you a lot more about yourself. And you can fall in love with the supervillain inside of you. You can fall in love with the bad guy inside of you as well. It's an amazing thing, but you have to give it a chance. You have to get to know it. And you can't always be judging it. So we, we, we have to learn a little bit. When we look at these stories, we have to look at what the bad guy is supposed to be teaching us. 
And over here, I'm not saying that we're going to fall in love with Haman in the Purim story, right? but I will quote the very famous, very famous, one of the most fascinating lines that introduces Purim. And one that, again, we have to think about again and again, because it's perhaps one of the deepest lines in all of the Talmud. It says that on Purim, a person has to become so intoxicated, and whether you are using, whatever that means to become intoxicated, right? We take it, we drink a lot, but it means something deeper, right? Whatever you're becoming intoxicated on, but you have to become so intoxicated, this is what the Talmud says, that you don't know the difference between blessing Mordechai, one of the heroes of the story, and cursing Haman, cursing Haman. Which means that you'll make a mistake and somehow think Mordechai is cursed and Haman is blessed. What a bizarre line from our sages. What are they talking about? What blasphemy! Right? That you can possibly suggest that a person will get confused between what's good and what's bad? But yet, there is some depth to that. There's some depth of, uh, on, on Purim, learning to befriend your demons, learning to go a little bit deeper into yourself and stop always judging everything as being good or bad. Because our whole life we're always judging good and bad. And just learning to embrace what is and to be able to see the goodness even in everything. And learn how even sometimes the bad things, the quote-unquote bad things, even those things are, are, are our friends. So if we take a look at the roots of Haman, who is he? Where does he come from? So we know that the story of Haman, the story of the, the, of, of the, the Purim villain, is not one that begins in the book of Esther. And by the way, I just want to say, also an essential introduction to Purim. The same thing that we say about the Passover story, same thing that we said about the Hanukkah story, the same thing we said about every Jewish story. Don't make the mistake and think that this is some sort of historical event that we are commemorating on this day, right? The Jewish people, we don't commemorate events. We see our stories as stories that are constantly repeating themselves and constantly unfolding. I said it yesterday, Richard and Nancy heard it, he said it in the Lunch and Learn about the, about the Exodus. The Exodus is not a historical event. It might be, but not the Exodus that we're, I mean, it likely is also a historical event, but we're not learning the Exodus as a historical event. We're learning the Exodus as our story from constriction to personal redemption. The Purim story is, has to be learned as our story. Unpack it. Understand who is Esther in your world, who is Ahasuerus, who is Mordechai, what's going on. Understand it as a story of our own personal struggle. And therefore, even though the book of Esther is the last book of the written Torah, I don't know if, you're, if everyone's familiar with that, by the way. The book of Esther is the closing book in the Torah. So that means it's actually unusual because it's, it's, the, it's also chronologically the last book. You have the five books of the Torah, that's the Jewish people, that's the creation of the world till the Jewish people go into Israel. Then you have the prophets, that deals with the Jewish people in Israel pretty much during the first temple period. 
The book of Esther is also the last book to be considered part of the written Torah. And that's significant. Because somehow or another, it's as if all of Torah, all of the written Torah, all of the stories are somehow building up to this moment. That the book of Esther is somehow supposed to catch, this is the grand finale. And therefore, this story captures in it many of the themes of the Torah. So who is Haman? So let's, so what we're going to do in today's class is we're going to look at the Torah roots of Haman. So were I to ask you, and I'm going to ask you, were I to ask you, where are the biblical roots of Haman? Again, we have Haman in the last book of the Torah, but Haman is alluded to, he's hinted to, his archetype exists way before in the Torah in a few different forms. So let's explore two different roots for Haman today. The first is Haman's nationality. Do you know Haman's nationality? Do you know where he's from? What nation is he from? He, the biblical nation that he's from is called Amalek. Amalek, A-M-A-L-E-K, or if you're spelling it in Hebrew, it would be Ayin Mem Lamid Kuf, Amalek. Now, Amalek is mentioned, who's Amalek? Who's, uh, Amalek is actually descends from Esav, Yaakov's brother, Esav. Is a, is a, the, 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 the name Amalek was the name of the grandson of Esav, but the nation of Amalek is referred to twice in the Torah, at least, but there's two sections of the Torah that discuss them. And the first one, and this is also why this is a very appropriate place to start, the first time that the nation of Amalek is mentioned is in this last week's Torah portion. Where? And this is very, very significant where. Amalek, after the Jewish people leave Egypt, if you take a look at this past week's Torah portion, it, it is one of the most festive Torah portions that there is. It's the Song of the Sea. It's called Shabbat Shira, the Shabbos of Song. Right? We read the Song of the Sea as Yashir, one of the most beautiful experiences of prophecy. If you think about a great music festival in the Torah, what can be greater? What is a greater picture of this of, 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 a, of a transcendent moment than the Jewish people going through the sea? And again, rabbinic literature has... So much, even just to, you know, the description of it. And as we know, every aspect of rabbinic literature, every time they're painting an imagery, even the imagery has depth to it, Kabbalistic depth to it. But the images that they picture of the Jewish people in this space, physically immersed, in, 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 engulfed with, with the walls of water surrounding them, but spiritually in a completely transcendent place. To the point that they're no longer having conversations, they're just singing. And the Talmud says that what even the lowest Jew experienced wasn't even Jews, only Jews crossing, because we know that when the Jewish people left Egypt, they didn't, it wasn't only Jews that left with them, but there were many, many other nations that joined them as well. You think about all of these people and they're sitting there and it says that even the lowest of the low, even the one that was the most distant, experienced the greatest prophecy at that moment. So it's extremely festive. Fast forward to this week's Torah portion, and we have now another amazing prophetic experience, one that's even greater than last week's. Different, but greater. That's the Jewish people standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
And it's somewhat a little bit different because in last week's Torah portion, they're in water and they're singing. And in this week's Torah portion, they're standing at the mountain and the mountain is on fire and they hear God speaking. Last week is more of kind of the sweet loving experience. This week is a little bit more of an awe-inspiring, intense experience. But these are two different high levels of prophecy. But there is an event that's sandwiched in between the two. See, with all of the with, with all the excitement of last week's Torah portion, it's sometimes easy to miss that the Torah portion ends with a war. I'm going to share my screen with you. I don't, I don't know if anyone saw the handout, but I'll share it with you now. Here it is. So this is from this past week's Torah portion. You see it on my screen, yes? The roots of Haman, do you see it? Okay. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rafidim. This is happening right after the splitting of the sea. And Moshe said to Joshua, pick some men for us, so assemble yourself a little bit of an army, and go out and do battle with Amalek. Tomorrow, this is Moshe speaking, I will station myself at the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moshe, Aaron, and Chor went up to the top of the hill. Then, whenever Moshe held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Right? So again, we have this hill, we've got this, this, um, uh, this uh, mini army uh, of the Jewish people waging war against Amalek. Moshe is on the top of his hill and he's lifting up his hands and the Jewish people are winning the war. And he drops his hands and Amalek starts winning the war. But Moshe's hands grew heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Chor, one on each side, supported his hands, thus his hands remained steady until the sun set, and Yehoshua overwhelmed the people of Amalek with the sword. So literally, one, two, three, four, five, six, we have these six verses, and in these six verses, these verses tell of this war with Amalek that's taking place in between the splitting of the sea and receiving the Torah, in between these two mega prophecies, these two major moments in the Exodus of going through the sea and receiving the Torah, we have this little war, this Amalek, that's coming and it's attacking. And Rashi, the common, the great commentary, Rashi, who always gives us insight in every single verse, gives us a little bit, usually based on the Midrash, gives us a little bit of perspective, a little bit of context to the story. So this is Rashi's commentary. Rashi's commenting on the verse, then came Amalek. Like then, like specifically then. Why specifically then? So Rashi says the following. Scripture, the Pasuk, the verses, the Torah, places this section immediately after this preceding verse when the Jewish people said, is the Lord among us or not? Right before the story, the Jewish people, they're worried, they're concerned where they're going to get their food from. So they start questioning God. So right then, after they're there, they're questioning, suddenly they're under attack. To imply, this is where I am, to imply, I am ever among you and ready at hand for everything you may need. And yet you say, is the Lord among us or not? By your lives, that's a way of like God like taking a stand. I swear that the hound, Amalek, shall come and bite you and you will cry for me and then... 
you will know where I am. A parable. This is still Rashi speaking. I'm reading from Rashi. It may be compared to a man who's carrying his son on his shoulders. And they go out on a journey and the son saw something sitting around that he says, Father, could you pick it up for me? And then he sees it a second time and a third time. And the father's doing all this while he's carrying his son on his shoulders. And then they meet somebody and the kid says, hey, have you seen my father? It's like, you know, when you're looking for your glasses and you didn't realize that it's on your head. Like, where did I put those glasses? So, right, the son's like, hey, where's my father? He's sitting on his shoulders, but he doesn't even realize. He forgets that he's on his father's shoulder. So the father says, don't you know where I am? He says, oh, you don't know where I am? Get off my shoulders. Then you'll know who I am. Right? And then the hound comes, and then the son obviously calls out for the father, and the father has to pick up the son again. So what is the Midrash telling us over here? Obviously, the parable is very, very obvious. God is sitting there. He's carrying the Jewish people. He brings them out of Egypt. He brings them through the sea. And now suddenly, they're questioning. And then at that point, a mullet comes and attacks. And the Jewish people now have to cry out to God, symbolized by Moshe lifting up his hands. They have to now look towards heaven to remind themselves, whose back are we on? And only then are they able to receive the Torah. So Amalek, the nation of Amalek, according to this Midrash, is a response to the Jewish people when God is carrying them and they forget that God is carrying them. The response of that is Amalek, right? Amalek is the physical manifestation of the inner doubt that the Jewish people are experiencing at any point in time. Applied personally, when in your life, when you're in your own life, you forget that God is carrying you on his shoulders, when you forget all of the wonderful, wonderful things that God has given, and therefore, now God has to send a wake-up call that will suddenly remind you that I've forgotten about all the blessings that God has given. That is Amalek in your life. Amalek is the wake-up call that reminds you that you forgot whose shoulders you're on. And that specifically happens at this very, very important moment when, when they're transitioning from one great revelation to the next. Now, Haman descends from Amalek. I, let's just take a moment now and just remind ourselves, because this is also important to really understand the Purim story. When exactly does the Purim story happen? Do you know? When, when in history? I don't mean what year. I, I'm very bad with years. But... But when, just from a from a, a, a historical perspective, when exactly does Purim happen? So it happens in between the first temple and the second temple. And it actually happens specifically when the clock on the exile that was supposed to be between the first and second temple because the Jewish people got kicked out and they were only supposed to be out of Israel for 70 years. That's what the prophet said. This is going to be a 70-year exile. You're going to go out into Babylon, then move over into 
Persia, which is where the purpose story happens, Medea, 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 I never know how to properly pronounce that, right? But that that's where they are, that's where Shushan is, that's where the Purim story happens, which means that that's really the metropolis where most of the Jews are living at that time. And officially on the clock of the prophets, exile is supposed to end. The prophet said, you're going to be back. You're going to go back. You're going to rebuild the second temple, which they eventually did not too long after the Purim story. But at that point, they're right there. They, they have the first temple behind them and the second temple in front of them. Really very similar to what you see when Amalek appears in the Torah. They're in between. They're in between the splitting of the sea and they're in between standing at Sinai. And it's almost as if it's almost as if the Torah is teaching that when you're sort of in this place, when you're in this transition moment, when you're going from point A to point B, in order to get to point B, you're going to have to go through some sort of spiritual struggle. And, 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 and passing that spiritual struggle is going to be the gateway to even this higher, this higher place, this higher point. There's a very, very powerful imagery that you see very often in, in, in the Jewish sources, and that is that a person is, finds themselves, um, you see it in different contexts, but, you know, you suddenly, a person is, 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 is shipwrecked, and they're just kind of floating there in the water, and everywhere they look, right, there's just water around them, they don't know how they're ever going to get to dry land. And then finally, they're just about ready to give up hope, when suddenly, right, they turn the, I guess they're not turning a corner, but I don't know, you know, whatever it is, suddenly, you know, they go over something and now suddenly they see dry land where they couldn't, and, 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 and it's so close, but they just couldn't see it at the angle that they were. Or the person who's lost in the forest and then suddenly the lightning comes and in that moment of lightning, they realize how close they actually are to that next thing, to getting out of the forest. So Judaism believes that the closer you are, to that moment of redemption, the more there's going to be an onslaught of challenge, of obstacles, and of doubt. And if you take a look, something fascinating, one of the, one of the great gematrias, one of the great numerologies in Torah. I'm sorry I don't have it in English over here. I just copied and pasted it, but it's in Hebrew, but I'll translate it. But this is from a Kabbalistic text. And it says, this word over here is Amalek. Mm -hmm. So Amalek, the nation of Amalek, Bigimatria, Gematria means numerology. Remember that in Kabbalah, Kabbalah says that if two words have the same numerical value, chances are they're related in their theme. Mm -hmm. So Amalek, Bigimatria, in Gematria equals, and does anyone know what this next word is? Suffolk. Suffolk means doubt. Amalek equals doubt. And also, another thing that it equals, Suffolk Bigamachia, this doubt is in Gematria numerology, El Acher, another power. Another power. Which means that whenever a person is doubting whether they're on the right track, often it might mean that they're actually so close to their destination. They're so close to their destination, and because of that, now the forces of doubt, the forces of resistance are going to come and, and, and attack. It's like when a person is about to make, make this Jewish breakthrough, right? I remember, and I, I think I bring this up very often in the class, but it was such an eye-opening moment. 
many times, many, many times when I was throughout our last 10 years of dealing with people who are growing in their Judaism and spiritual practice, many, many times when a person was ready for that breakthrough, they said, you know what? We're really ready now. We want to start taking on maybe greater Shabbat observance or, or taking on whatever it is. Right then, something happens in their life. Something happens that throws them off. Very often, and, and very often, it was people within their own family. People within their own family, when they start seeing that someone in their family is trying to grow spiritually, people within their own family suddenly put up massive resistance. That is this built-in mechanism in this world of really making sure that when you reach that destination, you own it. Because the greatest spiritual accomplishment is one that was earned through all of that resistance. Right? We all want to have this beautiful story of, you know, especially, you know, like you know, when, when we take people on the momentum trips, right? So... It, it would create such a beautiful story, right? We went to Israel and we stood at the Kotel, we stood at the Western Wall and we had a moment of revelation. Everything was so clear. And then we went back and we told it over to our families and they, and they embraced us. They embraced our story. And suddenly from that moment on, we started spending these beautiful Shabbats together. And, every, you know, and we, we would love if our spiritual story looked like that. You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, in, in the movies, right? They go, you take this trip, they go to India, they go to here, and they meet a guru, and suddenly their life has changed. But the reality is that that's not the spiritual story. Mm -hmm. That's the spiritual story that we like because we like to see our art. We, 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 we would love if our life looked like Hollywood. But that story... If, if that is your story, then what does that really mean? That means that you didn't do it. That means God did it for you. You went to the Western Wall, you had this great revelation, and then you went back and you took this revelation and you, and, and you applied it. God says, no, 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 that's not the way this works. Here's what happens. You go to the Kotel, you have this great revelation. Then you go back to your family in the United States. And they look at you like you're crazy. And you say, we're keeping Shabbat this week. And they say, no, we're not. And then you get into a fight with them. Right? And then you're not talking to each other for a week. And then finally you sit down to do it. And you know what? You're ready. Like, you know what? You ruined the whole thing. I didn't even have to go to Israel. Nothing. Right? And then you lose steam. And at that point, you say, you know what? Something happened in Israel. And by the way, I'm just using Israel as an example. It could be anything, whatever it is, right? It could be a powerful speech. It could be a class. It could be whatever personal awakening. It doesn't matter. After you lost that steam, now you said, okay, I remember something happened. And now I'm going to recommit myself to that. Now, that's the spiritual story that God's looking for. Right? So there has to be this Amalek between, there has to be this attack, this attack of doubt that happens in between the splitting of the sea and standing at Sinai. 
And there has to be this attack of Haman in between the first temple and the second temple. Because God says, you know what? Remember that first temple? Yeah, remember how you got it? I brought you into Israel. I gave you an, an amazing, I gave you King David, I gave you King Solomon. You built a temple and there were miracles there every single day. The first temple wasn't yours, Jewish people. The first temple was mine, God says. You were just at my party. Right? But you, you didn't do anything. You weren't fighting for it. Second temple, you're going to fight for. By the way, that's not the end of the story either. What's the end of the story? What we're fighting for now. Right? We're still trying to get to that third temple, whatever it will look like, whatever it will feel like, whatever it will be, who knows? That's the mystery of the future that we don't know. But we know that we're moving towards there. We know that we're fighting for it. Not for 70 years, but for 2,000 years. And who knows what's happening, right? We're closer to, 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 the, to the Israel of our dreams than we've ever been before. Right? We're closer to so many things than we've ever been. We're, we're right there. We're knocking at the door. But we're living in a world of Amalek. We're living in a world of Haman. We're living in a world of doubt. We're, we're, we're fighting. We're pushing forward. But yet we don't. It's a mystery. What, what's happening? Where's all this anti-Semitism going? What was COVID-19 supposed to teach us? Why did we have four years of, 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 of the most complicated president that we ever have? Literally, I mean, have we ever had such a, such a mystery of a president where simultaneously, if you took the Jewish people, you put a bunch of Jews in a room, and literally you will have some people saying this was the greatest president for the Jewish people ever, for Israel ever, and you'll have someone else saying he's Hitler. Literally, I mean, this will go down in history by looking back and being like, How, are we really speaking about the same person? Can you literally have a bunch of Jews in a room and some saying that this person is, is, is the greatest thing ever for the Jewish people and somebody else is comparing him to the person that tried to wipe out? It's, it's like, it's, it's mind-boggling. The mystery, the Amalek, the Suffolk, the doubt of what's going on is the greatest indication that we're right there knocking on the door of a major breakthrough. That's the idea of Haman. Now let's take a look. Let's go a little bit earlier in the Torah. Because the Talmud, our sages, teach us that actually the roots of Haman happened in the Torah even before Amalek. Where can you find Haman first? In the Garden of Eden. Take a look at this line from our sages. They say, Haman min ha-Torah minayin. From where in the Torah do I first learn about Haman? Right after Adam and Eve ate from the Garden of Eden. Take care, Robin. I'm going to send you the, uh, the recording. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you. Um, right uh, after Adam and Eve eat from the tree of good and evil. So they have to hide. And God goes and quote unquote looks for them or at least pretends to look for them. And God says, Ayaka, where are you? And they respond, well, we hid because we were embarrassed. Because we're here, we're in your presence, and we're not wearing any clothing. And God says, how do you know? How, what, what makes you embarrassed about that? 
Hamin ha'etz ataochel. Did you eat from the tree? And the word of did you, well, did you from, right? Did you from the tree eat? That's the way you would say it in the Torah. Is hamin, heimem nun, which also spells haman. So the rabbis say, where is the, not human being Haman, but the spiritual presence of Haman, when does it enter into the world? Right after Adam and Eve eat from the tree. The tree of what? The tree of good and evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree that makes everything confusing. The tree that tells us we don't even know, is this good or is this bad? That was this tree. The nature of this tree is this tree made everything complicated. Because within this tree, now suddenly, us as individuals, we lost the ability. We now see good things happening as bad. We see bad things happening as good. We're so confused. That was the purpose of this tree. And that's suddenly where Haman comes into play. To mix everything up, to confuse everything, everything, to create this this element, this aspect of doubt. And that is really the, where, where, where Purim, where the celebration of Purim comes in. This defeat over Haman, this ability to say that I'm not going to get sucked into the doubt. I'm going to stay on course. I'm going to stay true to what I know. I'm going to hang on to, to, to God and I'm going to, to believe that whatever life brings me, this is also going to work out fine. This is going to direct me. This is the hand of God pushing me forward to my next destination and I will not get off course by the confusion. So that eventually, after the victory of Purim, the very next step is going back to Israel, rebuilding that second temple. And that's a little bit about what the Haman, the bad guy, what he's supposed to represent, and what our struggle with Haman is supposed to represent. That aspect of doubt trying to throw us off course when we were about to make a spiritual breakthrough. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to rabbishlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.